Daniel LaPlante was just 17 when he committed one of the most horrifying murders Massachusetts has ever seen. But this isn't where his story starts. Hey Coffee and Crimers, I'm your host, Belle Fagan. Daniel LaPlante was born on May 15th, 1970, in the town of Townsend, Massachusetts. He grew up in a house on Elm Street where he allegedly endured horrific sexual and psychological abuse at the hands of his father, and then, during his teenage years, at the hands of his psychiatrist. Not to make light of the things that he allegedly went through, but I couldn't help but keep thinking of the movie title Nightmare on Elm Street which is absolutely nothing to do with this case at all, by the way. But the title definitely does still fit. His family's house and the plot that it was on was a mass of junk and old cars, uncared for and totally unkempt. Daniel attended North Middlesex High School, where he was described by the other kids and staff as a loner and not particularly friendly. By the 1980s, a neighbour had noticed and began getting worried about Daniel's constant trips into the woods behind their house. The Boston Globe newspaper reported the neighbour saying, you'd see him walk out there by himself. That's the only place you would see him, the woods. Diagnosed with ADHD and dyslexia by the same psychiatrist who allegedly was sexually abusing him, Daniel became the local neighbourhood thief by the age of 15. He would break into local homes during the evening, steal the owner's valuables, but when that was no longer a thrill, he moved on to mind games. Daniel began leaving things behind and moving things around in his neighbours' homes to scare them, and he would also move items around that made it clear that someone had entered their property. Like, we've all done it, we come home and think, did I put that cup there? But generally speaking, you very well could have. But he made it super obvious that somebody had been in. In 1986, his mind games turned to intense fear when he became obsessed with 15-year-old Tina Bowen. Daniel set in motion a series of events which he would be forever known for. Somehow, he had gotten the phone number of a family's address in the local area. Most likely, he'd burgled the house at some point, somehow found their telephone number, although I couldn't find anything in my research to confirm this, but it's not that difficult to get a phone number, right? The house belonged to a family of three, a father and his two daughters. The daughters, 15-year-old Tina and 9-year-old Karen, began talking to Daniel regularly on the phone. I mean... I know, it's different times and all of that jazz, but still, like, if I knew my kids were speaking to some rando on the phone, I don't think I'd be okay with it, but whatever. He told them that he'd been given their number by a friend who went to the same school as them, and that he was a good-looking, athletic, blonde, well-educated boy who also lived in the area. Tina and Daniel got closer and closer after several phone calls, and finally arranged to go out on a date one evening. And this, although wasn't a term at the time, but he had completely catfished her. 
When Daniel arrived on the Bowen's doorstep, Tina was shocked to see that the boy she'd been chatting with was the complete opposite of what he said he was. Instead of the athletic, all-American, jock-type boy that she was expecting, her blind date was a disheveled, greasy, dark-haired boy with, in her opinion, zero attractive features whatsoever. But she wasn't heartless. She'd obviously been brought up well because she'd said to Daniel she was going to have a date, so they had a date. She let Daniel take her to the local fair. After just an hour together, Tina made her excuses and went back home. We've all been there, don't blame her. During their date though, Daniel had found out that Tina and Karen had recently lost their mum to cancer, leaving only their dad as their sole caregiver. One of the reasons Tina made her excuses to leave the date early was that Daniel took way too much interest in the details of Tina's mum's death, like a lot more than regular curiosity. Tina said it seemed that Daniel was obsessed with the death, continually questioning her on how she felt at the moment that her mum died and how much her mum suffered. I mean, that's like not cool at all. Tina didn't willingly see Daniel again following their date. However, in something written straight out of the scenes of a horror movie, she would later find herself again in his company. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15, 15 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One night, Tina and Karen, out of complete teenage naivety and likely grief too, attempted to contact their dead mum beyond the grave by performing a seance in their basement. Deep down, not really expecting anything to come from it. And in that moment, nothing did happen. However, that same evening, Karen and Tina heard a rhythmic knocking against their bedroom walls as they slept. They were shook, okay? They were like, oh my goodness, their seance had worked, right? In the dead of the night, the two girls huddled together and began communicating with the unseen spirit force as though they were talking to their mum one more time. They asked the spirit questions to which it replied with more knocks against the wall. The girls were over the moon that they'd unlocked a supernatural window to their mum. 
This carried on for the next few nights until the knocking became so regular that it actually stopped the girls from sleeping completely. Then, over time, objects in the house began to disappear. Items that one day were maybe laid out on the table and the next day would be strewn all over the floor. The girls would come home from school to find that furniture had moved from one side of the room to the other. TV channels were changed, items were rearranged, milk mysteriously drunk. Full bottles of alcohol would suddenly appear and then the next time they'd appear, they'd be completely empty. Eventually, Karen and Tina believed that they were being haunted by an evil spirit, not the spirit of their mum, like they'd originally believed. But what about their dad? The girls had obviously told him about the odd happenings, but he believed that it was the girls themselves who were causing the havoc in the home. The girls told him that they believed that they had unknowingly allowed a ghost looking for revenge into their home, but Frank, their dad, refused to believe it. Again, if our kids come to us with a crazy story and there's been messes in the house and we've probably been having a go at them, it's the kind of things kids would make up, right? Oh, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, it was a ghost. He told the girls that they were being completely absurd and reminded them that grief can make you act crazy and to give themselves time to heal. One evening in January 1987, the strange knocking began again. Karen and Tina were alone in the front room. At this point, the constant tapping had become so regular that it was literally driving the girls insane. But this night, the noises didn't sound like they were coming from the walls, but instead from the basement. They grabbed a kitchen knife and warily made their way towards the source of the noise. Now, I have seen way too many scary movies to have done that. I am out of there, okay? I am not grabbing a knife. I'm not doing anything but high-tailing it out of that house. But that's what they did. As they crept down the basement stairs, they saw something that would haunt them forever. Written in blood red on the basement wall was the message, I'm in your room. Come and find me. Again, if I'd even gone that far to get to that point, that would have been it. I would have been absolutely gone. And this time they did. The girls ran. They literally bolted out of the house without hesitation and ran to their neighbours. They waited for their dad to get home and told him what they discovered. Frank, again, believed that it was his daughters who were responsible for the writing on the basement walls and decided that Tina and Karen needed grief counselling. He believed that all these stories, in inverted commas, were being told because they were struggling mentally with the loss of their mum. And I do get it. I really do feel that that's an easy assumption to make as a parent. Several weeks later, the noises started again. The girls again heard knocking sounds, but this time from behind Tina's bedroom wall. When the two girls entered, they found another message written in blood red on the wall saying, marry me. The aftermath played out exactly the same as before, with Frank placing the blame 100% on Tina and Karen. But on December 8th, 1986, Frank, the two girls and a neighbour returned home to find someone had used the toilet and items were out of place. At this point, Frank has been with the girls, so he left the house with the girls, the house was completely intact, he's come back with the girls, and the house isn't. So he now literally has no choice but to believe that actually these stories weren't stories. He searched the house and found an intruder hiding in a closet. The young man had dark spiked hair, 
a painted face and was wearing a hairy jacket. Now, again, in my research, I tried to find out what the heck a hairy jacket was. I couldn't find any pictures. I couldn't find any more descriptions other than a hairy jacket. So I'll leave that to your imagination. And now this is where many reports on the internet that he was wearing a dress belonging to their deceased mum has come out. But an article written by the Celtic Sentinel, which was actually written by police that responded to the scene, said that that wasn't true. The original report by Frank said he was wearing a hairy jacket. So I don't know. I don't know if maybe people have read about the message saying marry me and put two and two together and come out with five. But that's not true. He had a hatchet in one hand and a steel wrench in the other. Frank testified that the intruder ordered all four into a bedroom in a really eerily calm manner. Thankfully, Tina was able to escape from the room and run next door where she called the police frantically. That intruder was Daniel LaPlante. However, this is really, really interesting though. The Bowen family didn't identify Daniel when police arrived. Now, it's likely that they hadn't recognised him as Daniel, which is, I'm guessing, because of the face paint. Maybe even the hairy jacket, but probably definitely the face paint. In fact, Frank described the male as approximately 22 years old, whereas in reality, Daniel was 16 at the time. Tina described him as being six feet tall and being somewhere between 17 and 26 years old. Daniel was five foot eight. Now, it doesn't take long for everyone to realise that the messages are actually all written in ketchup. So the police now try and move on to trying to figure out how Daniel had gotten into the house because they literally cannot find any points of entry that look like they've been tampered with or broken into. By this point, the family are totally spooked and obviously don't want to stay in the house, so they pack up and go and check into a hotel. December 10th, two days later, the police get a call to go to that same residence. Officer Stephen Besanson arrived at the home, which was at 93 Lawrence Street, and was met by Frank, who told him that he'd returned to the home to get some belongings, because they basically just hightailed it out of there, grabbed what they needed. So he'd gone back just to get some more supplies, and as he was walking up to the front of the house, he had seen a face in the front window. The same face of the man that took his family hostage two days before. Now, sensibly, Frank hadn't gone into the house where he'd seen the face. He'd literally just called the cops straight away. So the officer takes Frank's keys and quickly does a perimeter check. Again, looking for footprints. It's snowed, so that makes it even easier to look for footprints. But there aren't any. Everything is fresh and untouched. At this point, he's thinking Frank must have gotten it wrong. I mean, it's understandable because I think I'd be paranoid going back into a house where... I'd found a random stranger and he just suddenly disappeared. However, the minute Officer Steve walks into the home, he realises Frank is 100% not paranoid. The Celtic Sentinel reports Steve saying, quote, When I opened the door on the right-hand wall, I saw a knife sticking out of the wall. And I see it's through a picture, a family picture, written on it in magic marker. I'm still here. Come find me. Now the hairs go up on the back of my head. On another wall, I saw another picture saying, I'm going to kill you all, again with a knife through it, end quote. Steve immediately called for backup and two more officers arrive and they all begin searching the house and once again, find nothing. This time though, they didn't give up. Officer Bazanson relayed the story to the paper and said, quote, oh, 
there's a wall to hide pipes. And I'm thinking, son of a B, there's enough room back there. I have one hand on the butt of my pistol. I saw what looked like a pile of clothes. He was totally covered with the clothes. I said, that's him. I pulled my pistol and said, I got the son of a B right here. But he didn't move. I told him, let me see your hands or I will splatter your brains all over that wall. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw my fellow officer, Dave Young, run out of the room. He left. This is when I saw Daniel was really bad. He was not afraid. He looked out of the corner of his eye. He wasn't afraid to have a gun stuck next to his head. End quote. Steve's take on Daniel not being afraid of having a gun to his head meshes well with Frank's statement, where he said that Daniel was totally cool, calm and collected when kidnapping his family. Now, you can actually see a rough sketch of Daniel's hiding place in our Facebook discussion group. But briefly now, it was a triangular space in a corner, bounded on two sides by the concrete foundation and an inner wall, and by another wall on the third outfacing side, separating the toilet from the plumbing pipes. Now, this space allowed just enough room for him to sit in a crouched position, and I guess even sleep in that crouched position too. He had literally been living in their walls, and that's why I said this is like a scene out of a movie. You do not expect anybody to be living for weeks and weeks inside your walls. Now, this is just shocking and baffling to me. Obviously, he was arrested, booked, charged, whatever. But shockingly, the judge actually granted him bail. If $10,000 could be raised and paid, he could await his trial free. Free and easy, just roaming the streets. Now, Daniel's mum agreed to pay, but had to remortgage her home to do so, which did actually end up taking about 10 months. So it wasn't until October 1987 that Daniel walked out of the juvenile detention centre on bail, yes, but essentially a free man. Now, there had been some backlash about that judge's decision. So if you aren't familiar with how a judge determines bail, they have to ask themselves the following questions. Okay, so the first one is, is there a risk of the defendant fleeing? Then, the type of crime that the person allegedly committed. Thirdly, the dangerousness of the defendant. And finally, the safety of the community. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure Daniel ticks every single one of those boxes. And his next actions prove my opinion to be correct. I'm going to say it to be correct. Because did that year in juvie produce a changed person? Absolutely not. Almost immediately, Daniel just slotted straight back into a life of crime. During one of his robberies the following month in the November, he stole two handguns from a neighbour's house. Also in the November, he broke into another local house belonging to the Gustafsson family. He stole belongings as usual, but the following month, on December 1st, 1987, the Gustafsson family had no idea that their lives were about to change forever. They lived around half a mile from Daniel's home, and we know that robbing neighbours was his MO. He didn't go very far from Elm Street. So this is the second time, okay? Remember that. Inside, he found pregnant nursery school teacher Priscilla Gustafsson, aged 33, and her young son, William. She had not long picked him up from daycare. He confronted Priscilla with that gun that he'd stolen and led her and William to the bedroom, putting William in the built-in closet and tying Priscilla to the bed. He then gagged her with one of his socks. 
After brutally raping her, he shot her twice in the head. He then took William into the bathroom and drowned him. As he was coming down the stairs to leave, the Gustafsons' other child, seven-year-old Abigail, had just gotten home on the school bus and was walking through the front door. He grabbed her, dragged her into another bathroom, where he drowned her as well. Now Priscilla's husband, Andrew, was at work and walked through the front door at 5.30pm, absolutely buzzing with excitement over a new deal that he'd just landed at work. But as he reached the master bedroom calling out for Priscilla, he was met with the most harrowing sight of his life. He found Priscilla lying face down on her bed, her pillows almost entirely soaked with blood. Hysterical, he immediately called the police, telling them that he was too scared to call out for the kids or go looking for the kids because he didn't want to find them harmed. So it was actually the police who found the bodies of the two children, five-year-old William in the upstairs bathroom and seven-year-old Abigail, who was only one week from turning eight in the downstairs bathroom. Compared to his other crimes, why did he go back to that home to rob it? He wasn't particularly known for going back a second time to burgle or rob a house. And why this time did he choose to rape and murder Priscilla and then kill her and her two innocent babies? Was it because this time he had a gun, so he felt more powerful to subdue his victims because usually he didn't have a gun? I don't know. All I know is that he then calmly went home and attended his niece's birthday party. I mean, that is standard psychopath behaviour. The reaction of the police again immediately tells me that my opinion that the judge was out of his dang goodness mind is correct. With literally no evidence at all, immediately they named Daniel as the suspect. Daniel, though, was nowhere to be found when police went to interview him. Nothing screams guilt like running, right? Obviously, he's now considered armed and dangerous. He's killed Priscilla with a gun, so they realise he's now got a weapon. So police act fast and set up a manhunt, handing out the photos from Daniel's previous arrest, because don't forget, he is on bail for the stalking of the Bowen family. So he'd had all these mugshots taken. So this is what they're handing out to people. Now, I couldn't find out much on how or why, but the police all ended up near some woods. Again, I'm not sure if they'd been reported sightings of him, but police began setting up a perimeter around this specific wooded area. And what happens next gave me chills. We all know a woman's intuition is very rarely wrong. And for Lynn McGovern, she just felt in her gut that something wasn't right. She'd been out running errands, and when she pulled into her driveway, she saw police setting up their perimeter. She went to get out of the car once she was, like, on her driveway, in her garage, you know, on her property. But she just couldn't. She had the most uneasy feeling about going into her house. So she literally sat in her car, frozen, for, like, ten minutes. Then a police cruiser pulls up behind her at the end of her driveway, obviously to join the rest of the manhunt, I'm guessing. So Lynn seized the opportunity, jumped out of her car and asked him to come and do a quick sweep of her house with her. And thank goodness she did. And thank goodness the police officer agreed. He could have easily said, look, I'm really sorry, ma'am. I've got to go and join this manhunt, yada, yada, yada. And because he agreed, it most likely saved her life. The minute they walked into the house, they heard a noise upstairs. As the police officer drew his weapon and made his way up, he saw Daniel drop his weapon on the landing and jump out of the second floor window and run off into the woods. 
it's not over, guys. Okay, I'm sorry to tell you, <laughs> it is not over. He is gone, literally vanished into thin air. So the manhunt continues, and obviously the search area widens. By the time it's dark, police are back at Elm Street. And you would be surprised at how many criminals head back to either the scene of the crime or their own home. I don't know why. Is it because so many criminals are dumb? I Honestly, I don't know why. As police pull up, they hear a woman sounding hysterical. It was a woman named Pam, and she was the source of the screaming. She was inside her neighbour Ed's house. She'd returned to her home, which was 17 Elm Street, so the same street as Daniel, and found a man with a gun inside. She knew immediately that it was Daniel LaPlante. At gunpoint, he told her that she was going to have to drive him out of the area. And if this wasn't so terrifying, it would actually be hilarious, because he said to her that the reason why was because he only had a learner's permit. Okay, so now he's worried about breaking the law? Got it. Got it. Just as they were leaving, the phone rang and Daniel bizarrely told Pam to pick it up, which she did. The call was from a relative warning of her that there was a search ongoing for Daniel and that he could be coming back to Elm Street. She obviously doesn't say anything, hangs up the phone, and Daniel then has Pam drive out onto Elm Street, where she noticed her neighbour Ed outside. They drove a bit further and Pam knew that it was now or never, so she jumped out of the car. Thankfully for her, Daniel didn't stop. Instead, he jumped into the driver's seat and raced away in the car himself. Except again, comically, he could not have picked a worse getaway car. Pam's vehicle was a bright orange van with a pop top and two huge for sale signs attached. I mean, if unless it was a clown car, it couldn't have been more obvious. The minute a bolo was put out, the car was spotted. As they closed in though, Daniel got out and ran. Knowing that he could hide in the smallest of spaces, as you will see from that sketch in our Facebook group, they checked everywhere this time, like no nook and cranny was off limits. And they eventually found him curled up inside of a dumpster. He was arrested and this time in October 1988, he was sentenced to three life sentences for Priscilla, William and Abigail's murders. At the time, he didn't show any remorse for his actions. A psych evaluation was carried out and it was found that he was clearly suffering from a multitude of personality disorders. But thankfully, I mean, you do get cases where sometimes that can either lessen the charges or they get put in a mental facility, whatever, but this didn't appear to. And I know I say this practically every week, but he also didn't sit in jail quietly and live out his days behind bars. From 1988 to 2014, he attempted to sue the courts multiple times for a violation of his rights. In one case, he claimed that the prison system violated his religious rights as he was allegedly a practising Satanist. He claimed that he required sufficient materials in order to carry out certain Satanic rites, but had been denied by prison officials. <laughs> okay. In 2017, it seemed that maybe he'd finally admitted to his actions because he then appealed for a reduced sentence because remember he'd been a juvenile when all of this had happened. He made the statement, words cannot fully capture what I have done. I murdered three innocent people. Because of me, a five-year-old boy will never turn six. There's a seven-year-old girl that will never turn eight. Because of me, a woman will never be able to give birth to her third child. I robbed an unborn child of his first breath. 
A husband was never able to hear from his family, I love you. I do not have words to fully express my profound sorrow, but I am truly sorry for the harm I have caused. From the very essence of who I am, from the depth of my soul, I am sorry. End quote. Now I know I'm jaded and super sceptical, but are these the words of a man who truly regrets his actions? Or are they just the words of a manipulative, deluded monster willing to say anything to be released? I'm just going to let you decide. Thankfully, the courts didn't forget that there had been four separate incidents four separate homes where nine individuals return to a supposedly empty home and are confronted instead by an armed maniac of a killer. Eight were kidnapped, three were murdered. He didn't deserve to see the light a day again for that level of trauma. So thankfully his appeal was denied and the judge ordering that he couldn't actually apply for parole again for a further 45 years, which actually takes us to 2062, where Daniel will be 91 years old. And to be honest, I think we're safe to say that that means he'll be behind bars for the rest of his life. Sadly, Andrew Gustafsson died in 2014, so he wasn't around to hear that his family's killer had unequivocally been banished to life in prison for good. Essentially, there's going to be no more parole hearings. On his deathbed, Andrew allegedly claimed, don't ever let him out. He needs to rot in prison, end quote. And although not here to see it, I'm just glad that he got his final wish. Sadly, Tina, Karen and Frank's lives derailed after the crime. And Frank actually left his daughters and died at the age of 50. So Daniel literally tore two families apart. To see today's case photos, click on the link in the case description to join the Cup of Coffee and Crime Facebook discussion group. And if you're enjoying being here, please leave a review on whatever platform you get your podcasts. Until next week, stay safe.